want you to take your Bibles tonight and turn to Matthew chapter 19, or call that passage up. Matthew chapter 19, uh, you'll see verses scattered about the worksheet, and anytime you see a verse without a book or a chapter, it's referring to Matthew chapter 19. I'd like to use that as our template tonight as we think through God's sexual ethic. I'd like to read these verses here through verse number 12, so follow along with me as we read this important passage. Matthew chapter 19, verse 1. Now, when Jesus had finished saying these things, he went away from Galilee and he entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. So he went from the northern part of Israel through the area of Samaria down to the southern area where Jerusalem is. And a large crowd followed him, much like they did across the Sea of Galilee. Now they're in mass following him down south and he healed them there. And the Pharisees came to him and tested him by asking him, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This is the passage we dealt with at length in session four. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Verse 8, and he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And the disciples said, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Now here's Jesus doing what he always does, and that is he speaks authoritatively. And when he speaks to the issues of sexual matters, he speaks with authority. Let's start there and spend some time thinking through the authoritative statements, beginning with Christ, and we'll move concentrically from there. Let's think specifically, letter A, about Christ and what he says as God incarnate course, we would have to go back to our Christology study to get the fullness of this, but we understand as Christians that Jesus is the God-man, Philippians chapter 2. He existed in the form of God, didn't regard equality with God, a thing to be hung on to, but he emptied himself and became a human being for the purpose of redemption, among others. That's primary, of course. But when he speaks, he speaks with divine authority. Whatever he says, he's not simply acquiescing to a culture. He's not just groping for answers. He's not speaking off the cuff. He speaks with divine authority. John 10, verses 36 through 38, gives us a little bit of the logic that Jesus would like us to have regarding what he says. And that isn't just blindly following him, even in the time of his ministry before his death and resurrection. But he says, do you say of him whom the Father has consecrated and sent into the world? That's a description of himself. Father has consecrated him, sent him into the world, set him apart, sent him to earth. You're blaspheming. Do you say that to me? He's speaking in the third person about himself. Are you saying that because I said I'm the son of God? If I'm doing the works of my father, if I'm not doing rather the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, if the statement I make is hard for you to accept, you've got to change your view of this because you believe the works, the works that that, that I do here, that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. So I'm going to say things and you're going to respond to those with the authority, uh, accepting it as the authority 
authority of the creator because of what I'm doing. Now, if you look at Matthew chapter 19 that you pulled up, I just wanted to include the setting of this discussion about sexual ethics where he is doing something that's become so commonplace in our study of Luke now, but he is healing people, something that the average person cannot do. God, the creator of human beings, can change the molecular makeup of a human body, and that's what he's been doing creatively with a word, changing people's bodies and healing them. And that is what he does to authenticate what he is saying. So, you know, Christ has to be believed even in the middle of his earthly ministry because he is endowed with this divine window, if you will, into his true being. He is God, God incarnate. He has the ability to do things such as heal the sick and even raise the dead, which he'd been doing. Romans chapter 1 verse 4 says, and if there was any doubt about the status of Christ, he was certainly declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus, the Messiah, Christ, our Lord, the boss, the king, the one in charge. So if we doubted it in his earthly ministry, because frankly there have been other prophets that have done things that were supernatural by the power of God, he often speaks in his own power and forgiving sin and saying to people to do certain things, not really relying on the Father in the sense that he is calling out to the Father or praying to the Father. He speaks with intrinsic authority, but certainly after he died and rose from the dead, we can point to this event that is unique from anything else we've seen in biblical history, that he calls, and by that I mean he prophesies his own death and resurrection, and he rises from the dead. And there should be no doubt as we look back at the red letters of the New Testament, if we have some foundation, as I tried to lay in our Bibliology series, 13 weeks, where we recognize we've got an accurate assessment of the words of Christ, then we are hearing the words of God. And that is important for us to recognize. Christ speaks with divine authority. What he says about marriage, what he says about sex, what he says about singleness, those things cannot be disregarded. He's proved himself to be so. And again, if the question in your mind, or if you're listening to this recorded message saying, well, I don't even know that what we have in the gospels is true because I've read Dan Brown and maybe the Gnostics had it right. And, you know, we don't know that we can trust the, the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Constantine put this all together and threw these other ones out that were better. Stop with all of that and go back and listen to our 13 week series. There's over 20 hours of lecturing on trying to explain and describe how we have in our hands or in our iPads or iPhones or whatever you were on here tonight. You've got an act accurate representation of the words of Christ via the pen of the apostles, and we spent a lot of time doing that. But that may seem unnecessary where we are in the middle of our anthropology study, but it's important for us to say Christ speaks with authority. And I call him the incarnate God because that's what he is. And that's very helpful for us to understand that when Christ speaks of sexual ethics that are binding and authoritative for us, he is God. And that God had spoken long before the incarnation in Nazareth and the birth of Christ in Bethlehem. Clearly, God has existed from all time and he has spoken to his creation about sexual things. So when someone says, as is often the case with the Hillsong Church in New York, for instance, this week, and they've got their opinions on sexual ethics and they spout off the cuff about the fact, well, you know, Jesus never said anything about this, that, or the other. So we're not really sure. We want to speak authoritatively on that. We just have to remember you're talking about the incarnate God. And if the incarnate God is Jesus Christ, and we say God has existed before, clearly the incarnate Incarnation, the triune God, if he's ever spoken, and we have an accurate record of that speaking to mankind, well, certainly that bears as much weight as the incarnate Christ's 
words. That's important for us to catch. Now, the confusion becomes, well, you know, the law in the Old Testament has got all kinds of weird things in it. And if you want to start quoting the Old Testament to me about sexual ethics, I'm going to throw a flag on the play and say, that's not fair because there's all that stuff about two kinds of fabric and, you know, sacrificing animals and weird, funny clothing for the priesthood. And I don't like all that stuff and you don't do all that stuff anyway. So don't quote the Old Testament to me as some kind of authority for my, you know, bedroom activities because it's a, it's a wacky left side of the Bible. Well, let's think that through. There are clearly civil laws that we may say, hey, we don't follow every civil law in the Old Testament. Well, because we need to understand and remember those civil laws were given because God was speaking to a nation that was to live among nations. And as an autonomous sovereign nation, they needed rules everywhere from, you know, the lending laws to the incarceration laws of the city of refuge to the retribution laws as to what one was supposed to pay back if they got caught stealing. We needed all those rules. And you may say, well, don't follow those rules. Well, that's understandable because in the New Testament, as followers of Yahweh, as Jesus Christ followers, we live as an international organization under a different nation's governmental laws. And according to the New Testament, in passages like Romans chapter 13, I have to defer to the laws of my country that I live under. And Paul said that to the Romans, clearly the seat of government in the first century. And they were to defer to the governmental laws insofar as they represented the rewarding of good and the punishing of wrong as defined by God himself. But I'm supposed to pay taxes. I'm supposed to submit to them. And I'm even supposed to defer to them and call on them when there's a need for judicial civil justice. So I I get it. You can open up the Bible and say, well, this was a capital punishment in the civil law of the Old Testament. And that's not what we're doing today. And you Christians aren't doing that. Well, I understand that. We are a international organization living under various national governments. And God says that's the way we're living right now. And so the civil laws may or may not be in vogue where we live. I get that. And then, of course, the part that throws everybody off is all those ceremonial laws. You've got ceremonial laws like cutting off your baby boy's foreskin when he's born and, you know, having all these weird things that are supposed to happen during your menstruation and having all this stuff happen about pigeons being sacrificed when you have a child and this many when you have a girl and this many when you have a boy. Those just seem so weird and archaic and two different kinds of seeds and growing your hair long on the sides of your head and things on the bottom of the hems of your robe. You don't do any of that stuff. So... You know, don't go quoting the Old Testament about my bedroom activities. We need to understand ceremonial laws, as most of you know, I trust. Perhaps you're new to this, but you need to understand all those ceremonial laws. As I've tried to illustrate, even this semester, we're much like the tuxedos and bridesmaids' dresses for the big event, which was the coming of Christ. They were all symbolic and ceremonial future pictures of redemption. And once the reality of Christ's coming and the accomplishment of redemption on the cross and the forgiveness of our sins, was accomplished, then all those ceremonies went away and the bridesmaids dresses were never worn again. And the the wedding dress was packed up and put in the attic and, and guys weren't wearing tuxes every day. So we understand that the ceremonies of the Old Testament and all these things that were all done under the priesthood and the Levites and things that you couldn't do if you had this kind of deformity. Well, certainly it doesn't matter today as it relates to this kind. And we talked about even in the Old Testament law, which I didn't have enough time to fully explain for those of you that were born from an illegitimate 
legitimate relationship, which talked about exclusion from the temple courts for several generations. Clearly, those were ceremonial laws that were symbols of the coming redemption of Christ and the importance between this kind of, uh, of symbology that we would have, just like we have in any ceremonies we might have today. So uh, clearly, they don't apply to how we understand our relationship with God now. And you didn't bring an animal to church to sacrifice. And I'm not a Levite. And you don't have any special holiday where we uh, slay animals or we walk into some, uh, you know, cordoned off room that we don't get to go in but once a year. Ceremonies, pictures, symbols, you do the same thing. You can scoff at those, but all the people that scoff at them, they do a lot of weird things at their wedding, which I think is one of our best examples in our very casual society we live in because we don't have very many ceremonies anymore. But still, that's a cultural ceremony where there's a lot of expectations that people still do. And if you looked at them 2,000 years from now, you might say, well, that was really stupid. Why did you guys do that? You might say that now, but you do them. And God sets them up for us. Then there's what we call moral law, letter C. Now, moral law is different than civil law because civil law was supposed to be a set of instructions for all the details of how to deal with the civil interactions of its populace. And we have more ceremonial laws, which were supposed to be symbolic of some coming redemption that was all accomplished in Christ. Moral law is very different, though. That was an expression or a reflection of God's holiness and what kind of person he is. Intrinsic to his nature, he now tries to describe those things, and he then communicates them to us in a series of precepts and a series of rules that say, this is how you ought to conduct your life because this is the kind of God I am. I'm different than fallen people. I'm different than fallen angels. I do things this way this way and this way. And when you function in the world, you ought to do things this way as well. Now, it doesn't have to do with sacrifices or foreskins or ceremonies or any of those kinds of things. It has nothing to do with your descendants or your lineage. It has nothing to do with your heritage or who you were born from or, or what kinds of clothes you wear. It has nothing to do with that. It has nothing to do with what would happen in the halls of justice in some ancient Mesopotamian government. It has to do with what reflects the holy behavior, values, and thoughts of God. And those are the things he expects us to do. Now, What I want to make clear in this, number two in your outline, is the enduring nature of the moral law. The moral law of God, when he speaks about the reflection of his holiness, the things that he expects us to do that reflect his virtuous nature, those are the things that endure even when we are an international organization living under other governments, and even when we put the bridesmaids' dresses away and and don't wear them anymore. We now have a life to live on this planet, in a sinful fallen world, and God says, here are the moral things, the moral dictates that you should live by. I have people all the time, especially today, if they have any, well, it doesn't matter who they are, but they come up and say, well, you know, I don't know where in the Bible, you always quote this civil, ceremonial, and moral law division. I don't see that kind of division in the Bible. Well, you do if you start looking for it. I can't quote you a verse. I suppose it's a lot like the Trinitarian doctrine that we all hold to. We don't have a chapter and verse we can go to, but we look all throughout the Bible and we start to recognize the distinctions. For instance, we're dealing with a New Testament church here in Corinth, very wealthy area in Asia Minor and the crossroads of the market routes. And here are these people being taught the gospel, planted the church miles and miles from Jerusalem. They weren't there seeing Christ be crucified or resurrected. They all had to believe the apostolic teaching by the apostles themselves, and Paul included. He comes through town and wins them to Christ and starts this church, and he's going to instruct them now how to live. He's not going to want them to act like 
Jewish people and all the ceremonies that look forward to redemption because redemption is here. He's not going to now say, let's pull out all the civil laws of the Old Testament and let's have you follow those and disregard the government of Rome and the city-states that have been set up all throughout the province of of this Greco-Roman world you live in. He doesn't deal with ceremonial and he doesn't deal with civil but he always deals with moral law and he speaks often about it. A distinction, for instance, in 1 Corinthians seven nineteen, and I guess you'd have to read the whole context to see that we led up to this statement. Hey, it's not about cutting off your foreskins, guys. It's neither circumcision or uncircumcision amount for anything. That doesn't matter anymore. That's one of the ceremonies. But you know what does matter is the keeping of the commandments of God. Now, your head spins around if you think one-dimensionally about the laws and the commands of God. You think about the law as a unified, homogenous, one singular thing, and you think, well, that was a command of God, to cut your baby's foreskins off. Well, uh, he's saying that's a ceremonial law. Clearly, we don't do that. But we look at the commandments of God, and we keep the commandments of God. What commandments are we talking about? Talking about the moral commands of God, which just two chapters later, he illustrates for us. He's talking about paying those who serve the church as teachers and leaders in the church. And he says this, who serves, and he's using an illustration just from life, who in the Roman government, for instance, serves as a soldier at his own expense? No, the government pays for them. Who plants a vineyard and doesn't eat the fruit from the vineyard? Of course, every farmer keeps part of it for himself and his family. Who tends a flock and doesn't get some of the milk to refresh themselves? They don't just take it all to market. Of course, they drink of it as well. Do I say these things? Those are illustrations now that are trying to make his point. And his point is your pastors should be professionally paid. In other words, you should pay your pastors from the offering. They should take up an offering and you should feel good about that because that is how it should work. And I'm not just giving illustrations from just common things like a farmer and a, and a shepherd and a soldier. Does not the law say the same thing? And now he quotes something you wouldn't expect him to quote, but it is a law that reflects the moral nature of God. Does not the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Okay, I know that was a command in the Old Testament. And we were, as we came out of Egypt there in 1445 BC, we were telling people not only how to function in government as we spoke to the leaders of the tribes and the, and the people of Israel, and not only were we talking about the ceremonies, but we talked about stuff like even when, you, you know, when you're taking your ox there to tread out the grain with that big thing across its neck and the bar and the yoke, and as they go through this and the, and the, 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 the grindstone, the millstone mills out there, don't put a muzzle on the ox. Let him stop every now and then and eat the grain that's being treaded out. You let them eat while they work. That's only proper. That law, he says, you should know it's not that God is just giving us these kind of, you know, PETA laws or animal loving laws. Not that he doesn't care about your oxen. He does. But is it oxen that he's concerned about in a, in a principle and precept like that? Of course not. It's more than that. Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It is written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher should thresh in the hope of sharing in the crop. So his point is being made by deferring to an Old Testament law and that Old Testament law was to be authoritative for how the church should function and the tie should be made even if it's somewhat separated in terms of principle from a law about oxen all the way down to, yeah, if someone is working, just like we let the ox 
eat. We ought to let someone who's working in an organization like the church be able to make his living from that. that that's a principle he makes deferring to the moral law that's even embedded in something as, as, as utilitarian as feeding the ox while he's threshing out the grain. That is a good example. I could give you more. We don't have time, but I'm trying to make the point. When I open up the Old Testament and I look at the moral law, I know the moral law is enduring. And this is the point I want to make. What the Old Testament moral law says about sexual ethics is currently and will be until the end of this epic, it will be binding. Don't handcuff me and say you can't quote Old Testament sexual ethics. As long as I can show you this is not civil law and this is not ceremonial law, I've got every right to quote the authoritative word of God because that's how the apostles taught us how to handle the law. Not only that, Jesus, and we could spend time talking about how Jesus spoke of the law and the binding nature of the moral law of God, but I don't have time. You get my point. Let's talk about apostolic authority. When the Hillsong folks say, well, you know what? We really can't speak very authoritatively on something like homosexuality because, you know, Jesus never really addressed it. Well, I beg to differ on that for one, but I would say if you're saying I can't quote anything before Christ and I can't quote anything after Christ, you don't understand the Bible. You just don't, musician and pastor. You don't understand it. Because the Bible is very clear on what it says about apostolic authority. It was promised. Let me give you two verses. And again, all of these topics we could spend an hour and a half on. But let me just try and summarize. And I'll try to just tersely give you the tightest case I can for these things quickly. For the sake of time, I have to build this foundation. John chapter 16, verses 12 through 14. Jesus says in the upper room discourse, I have many things to say to you. He's speaking just now to his apostles. Things that you cannot bear right now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all, all the truth. Now, any principle of interpretation, we call it hermeneutics, ought to carefully look at the original context and understand the historical setting. Understand not only the grammatical words and everything that's going on linguistically, but what's the setting here? Who is this promise given to? Now, we all get the spirit, I understand that, but in this context, it is about those apostles having the spirit of truth, guiding them into truth. Now, look, I know this is the case because he goes on to say, for he will not speak of his own authority, he will, but whatever he hears, he will speak. Now, the, the spirit is going to be a conduit of divine information. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Now, there's much more in the upper room discourse that makes this clear, that God is giving the promise, not only of recollection, that you'll be able to recall what I said with supernatural ability as apostles, but you're also going to get new information from the Spirit as my apostolos, and, and, and that transliterated word, apostle, it means you're my emissaries, my ambassadors, more than ambassadors. You are the ones with legal representation to speak on my behalf, and the Spirit is going to be the key to this. Now, there's so much more in the Upper Room Discourse, but let me show you where this sets the stage for even for 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Pastor Mark Kelly just preached on this this weekend to our high schoolers, and I know he was just deep into this text, and we were discussing it uh, between meetings this last week, but it was a great, it's a great text where the apostle changes the pronouns in this passage and begins to speak of himself as one of the apostles, which he makes a big case in First and Second Corinthians throughout the book to substantiate. He says, yet among the mature, and that's in contrast to the other kind of wisdom he's talked about out there, he says, we do impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age. We're not just pondering things and reflecting our best thoughts about God or of the rulers of this age or any of them, religious or otherwise, that are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom from God. See, now if you're with us in the bibliology series, that begs this word in summation. 
revelation. They're taking things that would otherwise not be known, and they are getting this. They're imparted a secret and hidden wisdom from God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. And those apostles, if you don't think they have glory, you haven't read the end of the Bible where the foundations of the new Jerusalem have their names etched on him. They, they are in, in glory. They are at the top. They are, as it says in Matthew 19, seated on the 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of the Israel. They're the top of the top, those apostles. And they have been given this impartation of revelation from the spirit that was promised in the upper room discourse, which Paul now is saying he's a part of that band. And you're thinking, well, that's a great promise. You can quote whatever you want, but can you prove it? That's what miracles were all about. Benny Hinn can't do them. He claims he can do them. And all these guys on TV, they can't do them. These guys could do them. Second Corinthians 12, 12, the signs of a true apostle. He says to the Corinthians, you should know my authority. They were performed among you with utmost patience. It wasn't just a trick behind a, a screen and it wasn't just, oh, I did one over here and not. No, patiently and enduringly doing these signs and wonders and mighty works. I proved my apostolic authority. Hebrews chapter two, verses three and four, classic text. We often quote, how are we going to escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared first by the Lord and it was attested to us, the writer of Hebrews says, by those who heard while God also bore witness with signs and wonders and various miracles by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. The only reason I have any teaching authority in your life is because I'm trying to show you the apostolic authority. If I'm outside of the gospels and outside of the old Testament, I'm trying to show you accurately what they wrote. They had authority, not because they were deferring to some other information, though often they did, but even when they gave new information, as Paul says in first Corinthians seven, he has the spirit of God. And as such, he is exposed to this secret wisdom from God. That's called revelation. And he gives it to the church. It's been encoded and codified in the New Testament, in the 27 books of the New Testament, and the black letters that surround the red letters are just as authoritative as as any other part of the Bible. So don't talk to me about what Jesus did or didn't say. He didn't talk about a lot of things that the Old Testament clearly speaks to in the moral law and that the apostles clearly speak to, and I have to stand back and recognize that is an authority just as strong as anything else in the Bible. What I'm saying is, in summary, number three, the, what the, what the, whatever the apostles say, what is written in the text about sexual ethics is binding. They spoke to the church age about church ethics, about how we live our lives. Whatever they say is binding. Now, I know you can throw flags on a lot of these things because a lot of people have tried to, and I wish we had three or four or five hours to deal with this one topic, but I want to make this clear. Pre-red letters, post-red letters... If it's in the canon through the apostles and prophets, we're dealing with something that is authoritative and binding. Now, authority is germane to judgment. That's why it's important. Why do I care if it's authoritative or not? Well, because if it is authoritative and it's divinely authoritative, then I will be held accountable for it. I will be judged based on what those things are. What it says, if I don't do it and disregard it, I will, I will incur God's judgment. Judgment, I should say, is coming for all. I don't care if you write worship songs or you're a Christian. It doesn't matter. The Bible's very clear. Let me just speak in general terms here. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, just as it's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment, that's the flow and sequence for every human being on the planet. You come to the end of your biological life, your spirit lives on. Beyond that, you are conscious and you meet your maker. And when you meet your maker, you are judged. There is a judgment. And that judgment is not, as we often say, you in some weird disembodied state that has no feelings, and so it's some kind of weird brain in a jar. Well, I understand you'll be naked for a 
while, a disembodied spirit for a while. But the Bible has taught from the very beginning when it comes to our afterlife. God did not create us to be disembodied as Paul taught here. As he spoke to the leaders of his day, he says, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down in the law. This is Acts 24, 14, and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men accept, speaking of those that we're talking to, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Now, right now we live our lives. It seems without a lot of accountability. You can do a lot of things tonight and tomorrow morning you wake up and you'll be a lot like if you didn't do those things. You can neglect a lot of things and wake up tomorrow morning without a lot of consequences because you didn't do those things. And you can say, well, there you go. I, I, you know, there's, there's no big consequences for this. But if there's authoritative information, that authoritative information becomes the foundation for your judgment. And you will be called into judgment, not in some weird experience, but you will die. You will leave your body behind. You will be reassembled with your body. And when you are, you will then incur the consequences of decisions that you make. Now, a lot of people don't learn about this as it relates to Christians, but let's talk about it. The Bema seat for Christians. Bema uh, is the way we like to say it, our Christian shorthand. It's translated in the passage we're going to look at here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 as the judgment seat. But it literally speaks to the platform that was raised up. And the Corinthians knew about this. They had them in every Roman province where you would have a place where judgment would take place. And much like we have a bench with a gavel that comes down, that authoritative decision about a situation was binding because you stood before the magistrate on an elevated platform. And that's the Bema seat. The judge would sit there. Now, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 through 10, note the pronouns. For we are always of good courage, speaking of himself and including other Christians in this. And we know that while we are at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. And that gives us that sense of freedom. You can do a lot of immoral things tonight. You may be, if you're a real Christian, convicted deeply by the Spirit. But you know what? The sky will not fall. You'll wake up tomorrow and you may be emboldened to do it again tomorrow. But that doesn't mean anything because you're not standing in the presence of the consuming fire. One day you will. And the Bible says, we know that we're at home in the body here on earth. We're away from the Lord for we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage and we should rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. And that will be a temporary state. We will get our bodies back and sentiently experience both the rewards and, and I should say in the next point, the retribution for those that do not know God. They will get all that in a very sentient way in their material biological bodies. So whether we are at home or away, for our case as Christians, we want to hear in the body or whether we're dead, we make it our aim to please him. We want to please him. Why? Why does that matter? Because we all must appear before the Bema seat, the raged platform where Christ will sit so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, we're not Catholics. We don't believe in purgatory, a man-made invention about what happens on your way to heaven. Not going to happen. There is no condemnation for those in Christ. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. But if you want to, because you were taught those verses, to never look at verses like this and take seriously the fact that you will one day stand before the consuming fire of God, the one who, according to Revelation chapter 1, has eyes like, like fire, and out of his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. You're going to have to stand before that Redeemer who gave his life so that you would not sin gave you instructions not only through his own voice but through the apostles and before he was incarnate in old testament moral law and he will hold you accountable for what you do whether good or evil will you be cast into hell no lake of fire no purgatory no i get that but don't test the lord on this you will be called to an account for everything you do the deeds you do in the body whether good or evil that's very important for us to catch 
Those who want to dance under the umbrella of God's grace and frolic in the shadow of his wonderful mercy, I get all that. I'm forgiven. I believe in grace. There is no condemnation for me. And Christ paid it all to tell us die. I understand that. But we have to come to grips with the fact that when God gave us authoritative instructions, he will hold us accountable for those instructions. So we live, as Peter said, in fear during our time on this earth, knowing that the one we address as father is an impartial judge who will judge each man's work. That's the Bible says it over and over again. I know those are the verses we avoid. That's what the Bible teaches. Now, non-Christians, it's even worse, but it's important for us to make note of. Non-Christians don't have the grace of God, at least not in the fashion that we do, the forgiveness that comes with the canceling of their debt. But they will stand at the great white throne judgment, as Revelation 20, verse 12 says. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were open. Plural, books. Now, I've often preached this and at least suggested to you there's books, and we're going to look in one book, and it's going to describe the deeds of a person. We know that because of the next verse or the next phrase in this verse that comes up, the next part of this verse that comes up. But then there's another book. I don't know what that book is unless my deeds are a multi-volume book. But the idea of this picture is a recording of something I do, and it's got to be judged against something else. It's got to be judged against what God has revealed as his moral law, what he's taught us to do. And there's another book that's open. It's the book of life. Another book was open. It's the book of life. That determines whether I'm in the right line or not for this kind of judgment. This is the second resurrection. And by that, I mean the second category of resurrection. And the dead, that's who they're described as in this line. Their name's not in the book of life. They're judged according to what was written in the books, according to what they had done. I've got a standard, a clear standard from God. I've got deeds that I do. I've got no name in the book of life. I'm now, as the rest of the passage goes on to say, having to face a very exacting judgment from my creator regarding my behavior. That's why, by the way, for all the people that, and I wrote another blog this week about, oh, you know what? Why do we care what, how non-Christians live? Let's just let non-Christians be non-Christians. I mean, come on. Why are we trying to make non-Christians live like Christians? Listen, I understand non-Christians. I get that. I'm not going to convince a non-Christian to live like a Christian, but I do understand this. Every non-Christian I care about, my family members that are not saved, my neighbors that are not saved, I want them to live an upstanding life because one day they're going to stand before the great white throne. And according to passages like Romans chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, I don't want them to presume on the riches of God's kindness and his forbearance and his patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead them to repentance. But instead, if they get stubborn in their hearts, their hard and impenitent heart, that means their unrepentant heart, if if they continue in that, they are now, look at this, storing up wrath for themselves for the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So if my life is a restraining of evil for my neighbor or some coworker, If I can do that with a non-Christian and be that salt and light that somehow restrains evil, as Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, they will have a more tolerable day in judgment. So I do want non-Christians to live like Christians. I'd love for them to be moral and upstanding and have sexual ethics just like mine. I don't want to raise my hands and go, I don't care what non-Christians do. Well, if you, do, if you don't care, you're a very callous person because I'd like you to stand at the edge of the lake of fire and look in at those people being punished with an exacting vengeance and retribution from the God that created them and say, if I could have done anything to lessen that, that would have been nice to mitigate a little bit of that punishment. We are in this world in part to be light in a dark world that the Bible says will have the effect of restraining evil because I take judgment seriously. There will be a resurrection of the just and the unjust, the saved and the unsaved. I'm going to be examined in my life. Both good and bad is going to be examined. Non-Christians are going to have their lives examined and they're going to be judged. And to the extent that they disregard God's law, their moral law for their lives, they will be judged with increasing measure. That's what the Bible teaches. 
Bottom line, we've got to obey his word. I have to obey his word, and I would like my society to obey his word. I'd like America to obey his word. I would like, you know, as the Proverbs says, righteousness is going to exalt any nation. I want my nation to live with biblical sexual ethics. I would like that. I'm, I'm not seeing that happen. It seems like we are at an accelerated rate, uh, you know, circling the drain, it seems here morally, but... I'd sure like that. I'd like everyone to obey the truth of God's word. As Hebrews 4 says, and I just want to quote the passage, the word of God, it is living and active, not just the red letters. Sharper than any two-edged sword, it pierces the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, to the discerning of the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. There is no creature hidden from God's sight, verse 13 says, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Every person on the planet, God sees right through the rafters of their house. He watches what adults do, consenting adults do in private. And he will get, everyone will answer to him. And the word of God is the thing that will discern my thoughts. It will understand what I am doing in light of its truth. And it will convict me. It should convict me. And I know that it's going to be the measure, the benchmark, the ruler by which my life and every non-Christian on the planet is judged. Back to Matthew chapter 19. I don't want to read too much into that. We've been to a lot of places in the Bible, but he's a Christ who heals. Now he's going to speak to sexual ethics. Verse 3. You got it open there? Pharisees came up. They tested him, saying, is it lawful for one to divorce his wife for any cause? Okay, that's where we're going to go. We're going to get into divorce here. But he says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, therefore, quoting now Genesis 2.14, man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one flesh. What God has joined together, let not man separate. Now in our day, it's sad that I have to deal with the first part of this discussion, but of course Christ knew it. That's why he puts an emphasis on it. Verse four, have you not read? He created them from the beginning. He made them male and female. Now we're going to talk about them joining together in one flesh. That's a euphemism for their sexual relationship. And the way God set this up from the beginning was male and female. Sexual ethic number two. Let's call it heterosexual. That is the ethic of God when it comes to your sexual behavior. It is to be heterosexual sexual behavior. Let's talk about that. Template of creation. That's what we're reading here in verse four. From the beginning, which he's helping us understand the paradigm. The template of creation is male and female. Verse four. Now, when God creates in Genesis, as we saw, and we did overlap some of the principles in this particular text with our fourth lecture, but the idea of God creating creates things in a template that we're supposed to, to learn from. It is, in many ways, an expression, male and female, heterosexual sexuality, an expression of natural theology. It's the way that God designed it. And in designing it, you don't have to read the Bible to figure this out. The design of those things speak to his pattern, his preference, what he wants, what he desires and instructs and expects us to do in terms of our bodies in this case. The expression of natural theology. Which again, when you look at the aberrance from this heterosexual ethic in the Bible, you see it described this way. Romans chapter 1, look up at the screen, verses 24 through 28. God gave them over. Speaking now about people that are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. They want to do what they want to do. They look at the truth. It should be known to them. It's evident to them in creation, but they suppress it. So God says, fine then, I'll give them up. Give them over to the lust of their heart. You're thinking about things. They're impure. They're not right. We'll let you do that. And you can now dishonor your bodies to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchange the truth about God. We don't believe that he's the one who makes the rules and tells, tells the truth and, and, and directs my life and is the, the Lord and speaks with authority. I'm going to worship and serve the creature. 
And if the creature wants to tell me it's okay, if someone less than God wants to open up Pandora's box or, or stretch the rules, fine. I'll serve him and do what he says rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Can't help but say that. For this reason, because they've given up on God and his authority, he gave them up to dishonorable passions. This is not honorable. There are passions then, even in that statement, that are honorable. And then there are passions that are not. Look at how he describes it now. Verse 26. For the women exchanged. Now look at the description of this. Deferring now to natural theology. Exchange natural relations, what would be in keeping with creation, for those that are contrary to nature. Heterosexuality is an expression of natural theology. And the men likewise. It's not just women who are lesbian. It says here, the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and they were consumed with passion for one another. A kind of sexual epithemia or passion, sexual desire that is contrary to nature. And they're committing shameless acts, it's called. Men with men receiving, uh, shameless acts with men, receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error since they did not see fit to acknowledge God. They didn't like God's sexual ethics. So God said, fine, gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. The Bible, as Jesus says, when he talks about our sexuality, begins with, let's go back to the beginning. He creates them male and female, complementary genders that now were designed to be one flesh. That's the euphemism for sexual behavior. Male and female, naturally created, you should learn this from natural theology, they go together. And in that complementary gender and coming together, when that is there then foregone, because we don't want to listen to God's sexual ethic, then he's willing to give people up to do what they want. That's how it's described. And certainly natural theology should say something to us in light of the mandate to procreate. And all I want to do here is refer back in your minds to lecture four when we dealt with being fruitful and multiplying. And we talked about exceptions to that, of course, even as we're going to get to exceptions here to marriage, we're going to find there are exceptions to being fruitful and multiply if you review that lecture, if you weren't with us that night, 14 54 was the number on that lecture. Be fruitful and multiply. And because of that, you just think in light of that original design, and that's how it began, male and female, one flesh, and from one flesh, male and female, complementary genders, we create children, and that was part of God's initial mandate to mankind. That's only possible in a heterosexual relationship. So God's sexual ethic, when we look at the template of creation, which is what Jesus, in the red letters of the Bible, draws us back to, He reminds us that's how it starts. That was the point. Complementary genders come together in one flesh. We think back to that Genesis passage that he discusses. That's in the context of being fruitful and multiply. That's only possible with a man and a woman. A deviation from this in the Bible has always been referred to as perversion. Perversion is not sin. It's worse than sin. It's not transgression. It's worse than transgression. The acceleration of the words for sin go from sin, falling short of God's pattern, to transgression, moving past God's pattern, to perversion, distorting God's pattern. And in natural theology, we can see the same thing. And you can, as we'll see here in a second, have God respond to people who've never read a page of the Bible and say, this is in your own natural reaction to your own bodies, you should know is perversion. You've perverted the natural order. Clearly condemned. I'll give you one example, for instance. And again, don't condemn me for quoting the Old Testament if we're dealing with something like the holiness of my body in sexual ethics. And that theme runs through Old and New Testament. I can quote a passage like this that deals with sexual morality and say, this speaks as authoritatively as any New Testament text on sexual morality. And he says, I'm speaking now to the men, you shall not lie with a male as you would with a woman. That kind of amorous, erotic encounter can't happen. If it does, that is, God says, an abomination. That is to me something I will not tolerate. 
And he goes on, speaking of perversion, you shall not lie with any animal, and so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. This is clearly, in terms of natural theology and even moral law, a perversion of God's order. In the beginning, he created male and female. They are to be one flesh, not animals and human beings, and not men with men and not women with women. That's the perversion of God's created order. Any deviation is perversion that's clearly condemned. And then all you have to do is start tracking from the beginning of the Bible how often God seems to judge this kind of perversion. God judges this perversion. This may come as a surprise to you if you haven't read the Bible carefully. He judges this perversion in the land of Canaan. It's one of the reasons God sends in Joshua and his men with swords in their hands to wipe out the Canaanites. Among other things, giving their babies in human sacrifice to Moloch, among a lot of other things, one of the things was he speaks of things like this, Leviticus 18, 24 through 30. We were just in this passage. He says, do not make yourself unclean by any of these things. He's just ended with homosexuality and bestiality. And he says, don't make yourself unclean by any of these things. For all these nations that I'm driving out before you, they've become unclean and the land has become unclean so that I punished its iniquity and the land vomited out its inhabitants. They were living there, and I can't have them there anymore. Don't do what they did. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules. And they're not hard ones even for the Canaanites to figure out because they're based in natural law. And do none of these abominations that he's just detailed, either the native or the stranger. I don't care if they're growing their hair long on the side of their head and following the ceremonial laws or not. If they just happen to be living among you and they're not even ceremonially Jewish or even nationally Jewish. Don't let them do these things. Don't let them do any of these abominations. Neither the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who were before you did all of these abominations. Keep reading. So that the land became unclean. That's what they were doing. And that's what got me upset. Lest the land vomit you out. You start acting like them, you'll be out of here too. Make it unclean as it vomited out the nation that was before you. For everyone who does any of these abominations, as the persons who do them, they shall be cut off from among their people. So keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you and never to make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. Signing it there with that little phrase, I am Yahweh Elohim. I'm the one who you answer to. I am the divine authority. And I'm telling you, don't do those things. Now, if this were ceremonial, how in the world could the Canaanites be held responsible for a ceremonial law that they would never come up with naturally? These are the moral, natural, overarching laws of God. And when the Canaanites broke them, God says, I'm going to now vomit them out of the land and I'll replace them with the Israelites. That was part of the conquest, part of the reason for the conquest. Certainly, if you go back further, our word sodomy, as you know, came from the city of Sodom. And we don't have time to review this whole passage. And I know people have said, well, there's a lot of other explanations for this. There is no other explanation for this than what we read clearly in the text. Genesis 19, verse 5. And they called the lot as they circled the house. He had the visitor there, you remember. Where are the men that came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may. Now, this is the biblical way to say it. Just like it says in Genesis 4 that Adam went and yodad Eve. He knew her. That's the Hebrew word. Same word used for sexual intimacy, sexual expression. We want to have that sexual relationship with these men. Jude 7 refers back to that. It says, just as in Sodom and Gomorrah, this is the New Testament book, 65th book of the Bible. They surrounded the cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality. That was one thing they did because remember, they ended up raping the daughters of Lot at that point and pursued unnatural desire. There it is again. It's a sin against natural law. They didn't have Romans chapter one. They didn't have Matthew chapter 19. They didn't have First Timothy chapter one. They had natural law and they should have known better. 
just knowing that God created male and female as a procreating one flesh relationship. And he says, because of that, it serves as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. This was God's example to say, listen, sexual immorality is wrong and unnatural desires, the perversion, the sin against natural law is also wrong. He not only judged that in Sodom, he also judged it in Israel. Unfortunately, Israel also fell to these sins exactly as God warned them not to. First Kings chapter 14 is one example, and we could go through many in the history of Israel. From 1445 all the way to 400 BC, we see this pop up from time to time. First Kings 14, 22 through 24, and Judah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And they provoked him, the people did, to jealousy with their sins that they committed. Now, apparently sexual expression in marriage, heterosexual, that doesn't provoke him to jealousy. That does not come before him as something egregious, more than all their fathers had done. For they also built for themselves high places and pillars and ashtarim, that's a plural noun for their false god, and on every high hill and under every green tree. And there also were the male cult prostitutes in the land. And that's not because your wife was going to church without you. This was homosexual acts. And they did according to the, all the abominations. If you had any confusion about this, they did all the abominations of the nations that, that the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. Going back again to the Leviticus passage and others in the law. That wasn't the only one. That we have these passages saying because of this unnatural, immoral sin, now we see people engaging that. Not only are they pursuing false gods, but they're doing it with male cult prostitutes. And they're engaging in the same kinds of sin. In the present age as well. First Timothy chapter 1. Verses 8 through 10, speaking of the proper use of the law, he says, we know that the law is good, Paul says to Timothy, if one uses it lawfully. Now we're talking to a church pastor in the present age, the church age. Timothy is the pastor of Ephesus, the church at Ephesus. He says, understand this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient. It's supposed to correct that behavior. It's for the ungodly. So they can be godly, the sinners, the unholy, the profane, those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Now you started this with the law. We're talking about the law now, not just being the New Testament sound doctrine of apostolic teaching, but the Old Testament precepts of moral sexual ethics. Now here it says, when people do what's contrary to that, that is to be corrected by the law. So those laws are binding. And just because the law carries penalty with it, that's the threat. And that's the idea here in this point that I'm trying to make. God judges the perversion. In this case, it's named homosexuality. And he does so in the present age. And he'll do so in the future. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. And again, today, lots of churches and clergy and pastor and worship leaders are deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. That phrase, hoti, makaloi, hoti, arson, oikoitai. That little phrase there that is translated in our text, men who practice homosexuality, includes the two Greek words that in some translations translate them separately, the effeminate and the homosexuals. Literally, effeminate is the right word, the soft ones. Malakos means they're, they're not masculine men, they're feminine men. And the, literally, if you want to translate that second word, the male bed partners of them. So we've got a clear depiction of a man who's not manly, it's a man who's feminine and the sexual male bed partner of the one. 
This is a picture, clearly, of homosexuality. I know a lot of the, quote-unquote, you know, Bible teachers who now want to embrace homosexuality try to talk their way around this. Listen, there's no way to talk around this unless you've got an axe to grind and a purpose to try and get out of it. The idea of this text couldn't be clear. And the Bible says, don't let anybody deceive you about these kinds of things. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. God is going to judge them in the future. These are, these are things that are, are out of bounds for anyone who claims Christ. Nor revilers, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor swindlers. They're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. But that may be where you're at right now. That may be where you were five years ago. That was how some of you were, whatever it was. You may have been the male bed partner to the effeminate man, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. God is here in the conversion experience, the miracle of regeneration to change your behavior. And whatever you were on this list to make you not that anymore, that that's not the pattern process or even the thought pattern of your life. He will judge it in the future. Let me say this very clearly, and I think this needs to be said perhaps. I don't hear anybody saying this, so let me say it as clearly as I can. Judgment on these things is not dependent on conscience. It has nothing to do with your conscience. I don't care if you feel fine about it. I don't care if you can get warm-hearted when you see two men kissing on the front page of USA Today. Going, oh, isn't that nice? They get what we get. They get to get married. They got a nice ceremony. These two gals in their dress. Woo! Hopefully that's not a lot of you, but if some of you just are heartwarmed by your favorite homosexual sitcom character, and you think, oh, how cute he is, and that's so wonderful, and no No longer do you have what I call the ick factor. It's gone. You don't feel any grossness from that. I just want to let you know, conscience, which is often tied up with that conviction of ick, this is an abomination. When that goes away, just know this, it it changes nothing about morality. Your ick factor on anything can change. Anything. I mean, because you weren't exposed to polygamy, for instance, you can have an ick factor about polygamy. Well, watch enough episodes of, you know, my sister wives or whatever they call that show or the other one, my five wives. And you know what? You'll get to know them. You'll learn, learn what they like and pizza night and family night. And he gets Jill on Thursday nights and Linda on Tuesday night. You, you can get so into the show. You think, I'm, I'm not even icked out. First time I watched it, I was icked out. Not icked out at all. See, and if you don't think Satan's process and pattern and strategy was to take things that are to God and abomination and a perversion that he will one day judge and inoculate our society by giving you enough of that in the media, in the culture, in music, in lyrics, in everything that we face to get our society to say, it's no longer icky to me. And you may be just right along with that group. It's not icky to me anymore. I don't care if it's icky to you. It doesn't matter. Our conscience can be so warm. Let me quote some passages. Let me first, um, well, I didn't have any passages for that. I, I do, I do later. I was getting on a roll there, and it was going to go on, so I need to slow down. I, got, I have some passages for you, though. I just, you do know that, right? Some of you were nodding when I was saying that because you know the ick factor can go away on anything. It's like people that want, if some people want to have anacrophobia, they're afraid of spiders. I can get you over that in an hour. I literally can't. Hydrophobia, whatever your phobia is, I can get you over that. All I have to do is what? Expose you to it long enough. You're going to get over that. Because you'll find it, oh, it's not harmful. Why? Because in this body, we're now away from the Lord. You're not standing in the presence of the all-consuming fire. So you know what? You get enough sin that God thinks is an abomination, and you get comfortable. The ick factor can go away. Let's talk at letter B. Get some text here now. Natural theology can be ignored. Absolutely. That's what the whole first chapter of Romans is about. And this is probably more than I need to quote, but you need to see the rest of these things I've already referred to. The wrath of God, verse 18, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men. Now, it's on its way. It's kind of like a missile, the way this is designed, right? It's coming. It's not here yet because chapter 2 says we're storing it up for the day of God's wrath, but it's on the way. It's coming. Well, who's it coming against? Those who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. What do you mean they suppress? They have the truth? Yeah. What can be known about God is plain to them, but... 
because God has shown it to them. They, it's there, the invisible attributes, namely his eternal powers, divine nature, clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. Although they knew God, those were things that could be ascertained through nature. They did not honor him as God or they didn't give thanks to God. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were dark and claiming to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity and dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. They began enjoying the very things that, that, that nature itself and the expression of God's attributes said to them was wrong and should be an abomination. But they were, they were now enjoying it. And as it says at the end of the chapter, giving hearty approval to those who did the same hearty approval. If I came out tonight as a homosexual pastor, posted on YouTube, how many likes would I get? How many positive comments would I get? Hearty approval from this world because of my saying that I now turn my back on the word of God and the truth of God and the clear teaching of God and the judgment of God. And I now look at natural theology and revealed theology, special theology, written theology. And I'm now going to, uh, I'm going to abandon that. I'm going to give myself over to the things that I want to give myself over to, which let me be clear, I don't want to give myself over to. But I'm just saying, the hearty approval of those that do the same will be all I'll get, certainly in our culture today. Conscience can be muted. The ick factor, this is what I was going to quote earlier. Romans chapter 2, verse 14. Conscience can clearly be muted. Just like natural theology can be faded and it can be ignored, it can be shrouded. My conscience and the ick and the feeling of this is bad and wrong, it can be muted. And you know this. It may not be homosexuality that you've gotten over the ick factor, but something in your life that Satan has tempted you has gotten you past all of the shame and the ick of it, and you're past it all now. And now you run to it. That can easily happen because your conscience, which is supposed to do this, when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires. Now that's a mouthful in that phrase because not many people do, but let's just assume in this scenario that they do. When they do that, they're not suppressing the truth. They're obeying the truth that they see. And that natural theology is now in concert and in harmony with their conscience. And they now do what the law requires. Then they're a law unto themselves, even though they don't have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts and their conscience is also bearing witness and conflicting thoughts accuse them or even excuse them because they are now responding to that conscience. And when they do, they have that rudder, that compass in terms of certain things. They have that clearly in their heart, guiding, directing, accusing, and even excusing them in situations where they should be excused. But as it said in chapter two, with a hard and impenitent heart, a response to that conscience that says, I don't want to do it. Then I store up for myself wrath on the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment is revealed. My conscience can be overcome and our culture's conscience has clearly been, been overcome in the last decade. If I want to talk about percentages, clearly in the last decade, the conscience of our culture is now over it when it comes to this particular point, heterosexuality. First Timothy chapter four, verses one and two. I'll give you a great Greek word here at the end of this verse. Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith, devoting themselves to deceitful spirits. You want to talk about my belief in the grand scheme of things. I'm not a conspiracist when it comes to human beings for the most part, but I'm a conspiracist big time when it comes to the spiritual beings, because I know I'm not fighting against flesh and blood because half the time they don't know what they're doing, but against the principalities and powers behind those people who are functioning in our society to accomplish their will. And certainly we are departing from the faith and the effect of the faith and the influence of the faith in our culture. And people have devoted themselves, even people with crosses around their neck, to the deceitful spirits and teaching of demons through the, insin- the insincerity of liars. They know the truth, but they lie about it. Whose consciences, how can they do that? Their consciences are, this is a great Greek word, katarizo. That's the word we get the word cauterized from. It's scarred. It's calloused. It's got scar tissue on it. It's seared, cauterized. Their consciences have been seared. So 
I can lie about the truth of what God's word says. And it really helps too when I get over the ick factor because my conscience now has been completely overrun. It has been so muted that you could say it has hardly any feeling at all when it comes to the particular topic that's on the table at the time. Let's talk about marriage. Matthew chapter 19. God's sexual ethic is marriage. You want to have sex? Great. Get married. That's what the Bible teaches. It says in verse 3, the Pharisees came, tested him. Is it lawful to divorce your wife? He says, well, let's just talk about marriage, first of all. Let's talk about male and female. Haven't you read? The Bible's very clear on this. At the beginning, he made them male and female. Verse 5, he said to them, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two become one flesh. Okay. Well, what's that all about? Verse 6. So that they are no longer two, but one. Now, how did that happen? Whatever therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So God is joining people together in some kind of relationship now. We call it marriage, the marriage of two lives. You can call it the cleaving together, the holding fast together, the bringing together or the sanctioning of God himself, bringing people together as one. It is, again, male and female, which, by the way, I just want to restate this because I want to make it clear. Marriage is something that this text says is only brought together in God's economy as it relates to male and female, which is always biological and genetic, not whatever you wake up this morning and feel like you are. If you follow any of the popular cultural news on this topic, it has now reached a level of absurdity in our culture. It is absurd. It's ridiculous. You heard about that case in, in Kansas where they don't, the school district put out a memo that said don't call your kids boys and girls because, you know, that's too confining. You need to call them purple penguins or something like that instead. That way they're free just not to think in terms of gender. Well, listen, you know, what's in their pants will clearly tell you whether they're boys or girls. This is a biological, genetic reality. I don't care if the boy feels like a girl or the girl feels like a boy. You cannot, by your whim or your desire or your thoughts or your feelings, decide whether you're a male or female. Male or female are the only kinds of people God joins together as one. You can pass all the marriage laws you want for homosexuals. You are not married. You can say you're married. You get a certificate that you're married. But according to the Bible, those two are never one in God's economy. They're not. It's impossible. Marriage is something God defines, and he defines it even though he defers in our culture, Romans 13, to the sanctioning of that legally in our culture by the government. If the government starts to say you can marry your dog or your cat or your car or your microwave oven or, or Bob next door, it doesn't matter what the culture says, and it doesn't matter what the government says. God says here, and it's Jesus speaking as though you needed it to be Jesus. It could be the God of the Old Testament or the apostles, the voice of Christ in, in the rest of the Bible. He's clearly said this is male and female. And male and female is not determined by how you feel, what you think, what you fantasize about. It's based on what you are biologically and genetically. That's natural theology. It should be clear, but our world has lost their mind. Letter B. By the way, male and female, these are spoken of in the singular here. This is a context that goes back to Adam and Eve. And it's not Adam, you know, and and Linda and Jill and Susan and, and Eve. This is one woman, one man. Now, let me talk about this really, really quick. Polygamy was never instituted. Never instituted. In the Bible, it was not instituted. God created one man, one woman, joined them together and sanctioned them to be one set of sexual partners and to be life partners. That was God's plan. One woman, one man was not instituted in the Old Testament. It was tolerated in the Old Testament. I understand that. It was. It was tolerated in the Old Testament. 
Now, if you look in the Old Testament for a rule, you're going to struggle to find one. And if you say, how come God was so tolerant of this? I just want to bring up one simple passage here. Romans chapter 4, verse 15. The law brings wrath. How come there wasn't some major punishment for these, these polygamists in the Old Testament? I mean, Abraham and David and Solomon and what's going on? The law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. Now, they should have learned. I get you. They should have learned from experience. And God did say to the kings, don't multiply wives. But he was very accommodating to this in the Old Testament. Why? I don't know. Ask him. I don't have an answer for you other than that he tolerated in the Old Testament. He did. But it was now and is officially banned. Let's make that clear. So if you want him to take on multiple wives, I, you can't. Not, not biblically. Let me make clear right here. I can go to this passage, Matthew 19. If you were sitting around scratching your head in 400 BC saying, I don't know, should I take more than one wife or not? You could look for a specific command and say, well, I don't really see one here. I guess I will. Jesus comes on the scene and he points back to creation. Says, look at creation, male and female. That ought to tell you something. One male, one female. That ought to tell you something. He's saying, look at the pattern. He's putting the emphasis and the divine sanction and the highlighter on the natural theology and the pattern of creation. So Christ clarifies here in Matthew 19. This is one man, one woman. Monogamy now is explicitly required of the leaders of the church. First Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. An overseer, an episkopos. He must be above reproach. Husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable. What was that? Husband of one wife. You get, you get one wife. That's what you get. And what if I'm not a pastor? I'm just, you know, a ministry leader. Great. Ministry leaders. That's the diakonos. That means you're a servant leader in the church. Each one must be the husband of one wife, managing their children in their own households. Well, one wife, not, not polygamists. And that was going on in the first century. So they're distinguishing themselves. Titus 1.6, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, talking of church leaders here. Children are believers, not open to the charge of being de- of debauchery or insubordination. So you get one wife, one wife, one wife. You get one wife. This is one man, one woman. This is monogamy. Well, I'm not a pastor and I'm not a ministry leader. Great. It's required of congregants too. Now, I can't look at a verse for you. And when I host my Bible answer show on Tuesdays, I get people calling in saying, well, there's no verse you can point to. I, I understand that. But I can point to a passage like this and make it clear for you. First Peter chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. Just because God tolerated in his Old Testament. He made clear in Matthew 19, that's not the pattern. And he says of leaders, you got to be a monogamous person, not a polygamous person. And if, even if you're a deacon in the church. Now it says to everyone speaking here to the leaders about everyone, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock, which by the way, if we spent time in first Timothy chapter three and Titus chapter one, you'd find all of those things clearly are couched in and punctuated by the reminder that your lifestyle is a example to everyone in the church. It's more explicit perhaps here in Hebrews chapter 13, verse seven, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. They have a certain standard that they have to live by. Consider the outcome of their way of life. Imitate their faith. Do what they do. Follow their example. So I know it's a second tier command, but I am saying Matthew 19 should put it to rest. But if you're like some of my really incredulous callers who are like, well, you know, you know, I don't see a chapter verse. Great. Everyone in the church should want to pattern their moral behavior after the leaders of the church because they have to reach some stringent qualifications in the church and not perfect. I understand that, but they are to be monogamous and so should you follow their example. Just let me throw this in real quick. Post-1445 B.C., that's when we had the law given, or thereafter, 1440, 1435, in that range, after they came out of the slavery from Egypt in 1445. You could not marry a close relative. Here's the command, Leviticus 18, verse 6, at least one of many that we see. None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives. Now, here's the euphemism for sexual relationship, to uncover nakedness. 
I'm the Lord. There again, when he says that kind of thing, I am Yahweh. I'm your boss. I'm in charge. Don't do this. So the command is clear. You can't marry a close relative. And he lists a lot of those. The logic of this is not explained. We went a long time. We don't know how long from Adam and Eve to the giving of the law. When now he says, don't do that. What's the deal? I don't know. We could hypothesize about the gene pool and all that. And I had a quote to quote you, but I don't have time for it. Early allowance. What was that all about? Well, you have really no option, at least in the first generation. Genesis chapter five, verses three through five. I know everyone says, well, Adam and Eve only had two boys. So what's with that? And one of them was dead after a while. So listen, they lived for almost a millennia. Think about this. When he was 130, now we're long past at uh, Cain and Abel. You got, you got another person that's going to be very important. He fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800. Now think about that. It's a lot of time to bear children in this very different world that he lived in. And he had other sons and daughters. And all the days of Adam, he lived 930 years and he died. Now, if I meet my younger sister, who's 230 years younger than me, uh, trust me, I've never met her. This is not as icky as you feel that it is growing up in your, you know, little family with, you know, two brothers and a sister. I can never marry my sister. Yeah, it's real. Talk about icky. That's icky. Listen, it's a whole different ball game in the early years of people taking seriously the command to be fruitful and multiply. You know, 19 kids and counting was nothing. That in when it comes to Adam and Eve, they'd be laughing at that show. Like, what are you talking about? Well, you get to work, man. I mean, they were having all kinds of kids. I mean, there were cities created before we even... Uh, Cain was worried about getting killed by his brothers and sisters and cousins. And and quickly, this turns into a very big family chart. No time for that. Number four, fidelity. Back to Matthew 19. Matthew chapter 19. The whole question was divorce. Verse number three. Is it lawful for someone to divorce his wife for any cause? He says, man, man shall leave his father and mother, cling to his wife, one flesh. God joins together, let no one separate. Why then did Moses command to give one a certificate of divorce and send her away? Well, he said this because of the hardness of your hearts, because you're sinners. He allowed you to divorce your your wives from the beginning, but it's not so. Now, let me explain what the point should be and the only exception here. Now, there are a couple other exceptions, 1 Corinthians 7, Romans chapter 7. We can talk about those another time. But here's what we're dealing with here. It says this. Whoever, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, this is verse 9, Matthew 19, and marries another, commits adultery. So you want to move on from this wife to go to another wife. When you do that and bed that new wife down, I don't care if you had a ceremony and someone threw a a marriage certificate at you and signed it, you are now in an adulterous relationship. You committed adultery. That's the picture here, fidelity. It is intrinsic to the covenant. That's what he's saying. The point of this is exclusive sexuality within that marriage. That is your sexual relationship. Now we dealt with that in lecture number four, the sexual union, one flesh, but we can add to that an exclusive one flesh relationship. That's it. It's an exclusive sexual union intrinsic to the covenant. It's reflective of Christ in the church. Let me throw that in real quick. It's reflective of Christ in the church, the kind of fidelity we're looking for here. Of course, we don't have sex with Christ. I get that. But the picture of intimacy and joy with one another and enjoying one another, that's the picture of Christ in the church. And he says this in Ephesians chapter five, verse 31. Quotes again now. Paul quotes this time, not Jesus. Genesis 2. And he says, Therefore man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife. Two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound that's going on in this text. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. That's what he's been teaching from verse 22 on. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. Let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, okay, we got lots of teaching about marriage that we can glean from this. But I'm talking about the church and Christ. That is what really matters. That's the archetype. And then everything else is a reflection of that. So when I think about that and being faithful to my wife, or you think about that and being faithful to your husband, the picture of fidelity of Christ in his church, we want nothing more than that, than Christ to be faithful to his church and the church to be faithful to Christ. And because of that, that's the motivation given there in Ephesians chapter 5. 
Fidelity, by the way, is maintained in one's imagination. That's where it is. That's the battleground. That's where it all takes place. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 and 28. You've heard it said, I'm not, you shall not commit adultery. Clearly, Genesis 20. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with a lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See, people were taking the law and saying, as long as I don't cross that law, then I'm not guilty. And Jesus is saying, listen, when you're moving in the direction of infidelity and you're not moving in the direction of fidelity, see, don't you see that what you're doing in your heart, though you may not be doing it physically, is you're moving in the direction of infidelity. That's called adultery. Your brain needs to be working in the direction of fidelity, not in the direction of infidelity. And you can say, well, I can work in the direction of infidelity as long as I don't commit adultery. And he's saying, no, 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 that's not how it works. Fidelity is maintained in your imagination. And so keep your imagination, your mind, your fantasies, your thoughts moving in the direction of your one monogamous, exclusive sexual relationship that you have. This passage we read recently, and it was so, I thought of this sermon I was going to preach tonight when we read it a few days ago. So I thought I would quote it for you. He says, how can I pardon you? Look at your culture. Your children have forsaken me and have sworn by those who are not gods. So they're, they're, they're chasing other gods. When I fed them to the full, I was kind to them. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. James chapter 1, I, I was good to you. Then they committed adultery. And they trooped to the houses of whores. They visited prostitutes. They were well-fed, lusty stallions. Look at the, the poetry here. Each neighing for his neighbor's wife. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? Shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? Now, even if you're not going to the whorehouse... And even if you're not committing adultery, one of the things he names there is the, is people neighing for another person's partner Mm, that, that he says, I got to punish a culture like that. Second Peter chapter two, verse 14, there's another phrase that should jump off the page to, to typify what people are doing in their minds, even though they may not be crossing the line of adultery in behavior. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They, they entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. So the accursed children are described in verse 14 as having eyes full of adultery. Now their life may not be full of adultery, but see their imagination is, their eyes are. Fidelity is maintained in one's imagination. Letter D, a violation can destroy the covenant. He says in this passage, Matthew chapter 19, what God has joined together, let no one separate. But you know what? I understand that Old Testament certificate of divorce that Moses talked about. If you divorce your wife, except for sexual immorality, marry another who committed adultery. Now reverse that. If I do divorce my wife and I'm telling you, no, it's because she's committing sexual and, you know, adultery, immorality. Then if I were to marry another wife, You couldn't say I was committing adultery. Why? Because that violation of my exclusive sexual relationship can destroy the covenant. Now, I should say it doesn't have to, right? So many examples in the Bible, Hosea, Gomer, Jesus, the church. There's so many examples of restoration. I said it earlier in Matthew 5. Also said whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Hebrews 13, 4, let the marriage bed... Be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Though, I mean, again, if you don't care about accountability or you don't think that's a reality, I don't know. You're dancing and frolicking in the fountain of grace. You think well, that's no big deal. I hope you never use that as a license for sin. Grace instructs us to deny ungodliness, right? That's the point. Number five, as though we had time for this. Sexual ethic abstinence, verses 10 through 12. After all that, the disciples say, if such, a, if such is the case with a man and his wife, it's better not to marry. If you're telling me that's the one exclusive, man, you're telling me I can never divorce. What are you talking? I can't do this. And he says, nah, just go ahead. You can do it. No, that's not what he says. Not everyone can receive this saying. What do you mean? Only those to whom it is given. What saying? And then he talks about eunuchs. 
Some eunuchs from birth, some eunuchs made eunuchs by men, others eunuchs made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. So the this in this passage is what? Forsaking marriage. That's called abstinence. Let me say this quickly. Abstinence is not allowed in marriage. Did we deal with that already? In the marriage, or yeah, marriage and be fruitful and multiply lecture. First Corinthians 7, because of sexual temptation, you should have your own wife, man, and, and a wife should have her own husband, and have in that context is sex. Don't deprive one another except perhaps, perhaps, by agreement for a limited time, you devote yourself to prayer. If you've never had a prayer fast sexually, you don't have to. Perhaps, that's what it said. So no problem. Come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So you can't be abstinent in marriage. And you can't demand that someone be abstinent. First Corinthians chapter 7, they can't exercise self-control. It's clearly an option here. They should marry. It's better to marry than to burn with passion. Or as 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 4 says, people get their theology tweaked. The Spirit expressly says in latter times, some will depart from the faith, devoting themselves to deceitful spirits, teaching of demons. We talked about this passage. Seared consciences, what do they do? They forbid marriage. And they require abstinence from foods that God has created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good. The foods are and marriage is. That's what this context is saying. And nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. So you have a wedding, you get married, you have sex. Fantastic. It's given to you by God as something to enjoy. That's what this text says. So no one can demand it. And the early church struggled with this. They often demanded it, thought it was more holy than in singling that's wrong. Verse 11 of Matthew 19. He said, not everyone can receive this statement, but only those to whom it is given. Some people are gifted in this regard and they have no interest in that. Paul himself was one like that. He says, I say this all as a concession, not as a command. I say this wishing that all of you were as myself because I see advantages to that. I don't want to get married. I'm not burning with passion to get married. I don't have this sexual appetite like you guys do, but each has his own gift from God. One has one kind, one has another. I've got the ability to be abstinent and comfortable with that. You want to get married? Great. Get married. To the unmarried and the widows, I say it's good for them to remain single as I am. I see great advantages to that, but it's a gift of God, just as Jesus said. Some by birth, this could open a can of worms, but in this text, it says some are eunuchs who are not interested in married marriage from birth. Maybe even in their desires, they're, they're tweaked. Fine. Great. If that's the case, whatever. Homosexuality, the Bible has said, is a perversion that will be punished. Heterosexuality is the only sexual outlet in marriage, monogamous marriage. So if that's not, that's not your cup of tea, great. Then, that's, then, then what do you do? Abstinence. That's what this passage is teaching. And some are that way, no interest in marrying someone, great, by birth. Some by, I'll call it disability in quotation marks. Some have been made that way by men. Now, of course, in the first century, you had people castrating people all the way back to the Old Testament times because you had this uh, you know, ill-advised harem of women and you needed someone to take care of them. And there was lots of reasons. Increasing loyalty, the Greco-Roman society talked about how good it was with a castrated man in charge of your household. He would be loyal. You wouldn't have any issues. And so you had a lot of that going on in ancient cultures and and even you could make the case, as some do in commentating on this passage, perhaps there's some that are born and it's not something that is a natural desire, something damaged, fine, whatever. If they're not interested in being married, they, they are not interested in sexual gratification, great. Some are eunuchs, he says, because they were made that way. And some by decision in this text. And let me read it again for you. You've got it open there. There are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs. Now, I don't think he's advising, as some in the early church had done, cutting off your testicles. I would not advise that. That's not the point here. They have made themselves eunuchs in the picture his here of abstinence for life from sexual encounters. They've made themselves that for the sake of the kingdom of God. Now, let him who is able to receive it, receive it. That's what Paul is arguing here. I want you to be free from anxieties, 1 Corinthians 7.32. Unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord. Please the Lord. Married man, anxious about worldly things. Please his wife. Interests are divided. Unmarried man, 
betrothed woman, rather, unmarried woman, anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. Married woman, anxious about the worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this to your own benefit, not to lay restraint upon you, but promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. So perhaps by decision, if you can handle that, be single, serve the Lord, be focused on that, no problem. With no time left. 